0: Uh, One of the things that uh, people have been really very honest at New Horizon, and I have appreciated the honesty because I always or nearly always appreciate honesty, and uh, a lot of what I say tonight will be very honest Uh, you may like it, you may not like it, you may agree with it, you may disagree with it. And I often say to people uh, when I preach on subjects that are difficult or challenging or controversial, sometimes subjects that are difficult for me, that if there is anything that I say that is not true to the Word of God, forget it. But if what the Lord has put in my heart for tonight is true to his word, please take it to heart. I said you were a very honest group. You may not know that I studied English at Trinity College Dublin. I met my wife there the very first week at university in 1969. She studied English as well. And somebody pointed out to me that the word complementary, when it's used in the sense that I used it on Saturday night, is spelt with an E and not an I. There are some very intelligent people in this uh, room. And the last time I was speaking, I got confused about a word. It was, uh, I thought it was busty or booze of me. Uh, And I'm not sure how our uh, signers do it, but uh, I immediately got a text at the end. A round of applause for our signers. I got a little text from a friend at the end. He said, I think the word you were looking for is buxom. Is that right? Tonight, tonight our subject is a difficult one, a very difficult one for us in Northern Ireland, and uh, one which we honestly don't really want to face in Northern Ireland. And if I were to put it in, in a way that maybe you can enter into it with, in the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I had a great time having tea with Maud this afternoon. And I think that one of the things that we can quite honestly say here in Northern Ireland is that God has truly blessed us with a a missionary spirit and a missionary zeal and that over many generations we have given vast amounts of money to mission. And we have sent out the most wonderful missionaries in the world, and we've seen that this week. But we are not really very good at Samaria. Another person said to me after the buxom bit that really I should just say a John 4 woman, a woman of Samaria. We are not good at Samaria. We don't know what to do with Samaria. We don't actually want to face into even what we think about Samaria. And so we end up doing mission very locally and mission very globally but really missing major parts of our own province and major parts of our own country which we managed to kind of airbrush out because we've got used to living in Northern Ireland even with all our consultations about shared future, about uh, C- CBI, what is a but that, that one anyway. <laughs> cohesion, C S I, Cohesion Sharing, and Integration, and towards building uh, a united community. We still live in our kind of parallel worlds and parallel tracks. I want to read just a little bit. I'll not ask you to stand today because it's only a small part from Luke chapter nine, beginning at verse fifty two. And Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on towards another village. I want to tell you a little bit of my own personal story. When I was about, I think, about twenty-one years of age, I was home one night from university, and I was sitting at the fire with my mother just the two of us. And she said to me, just out of the blue, she said, there's something I need to tell you. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. It felt as though it was going to be something quite serious, and for her it was something serious. She said, I need to tell you that your grandfather was a Roman Catholic. Now, my grandfather had died in 1912 when she was five years of age, but she had worked in the Ulster Unionist headquarters in Glengall Street all her life, and I can only presume that she had been taught or had inculcated into her that this was a state secret. You mustn't admit, even though her name was McGinley and she was from Donegal, uh, the state's secret was that her father was a Roman Catholic. I, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, to be quite honest with you, and I think I just kept a poker face, because she'd always said to me, your grandfather died in a train crash in Chicago, Illinois. And actually after she had died Uh, I was on one occasion in Chicago, and I decided to see if I could trace this man, Danny McGinley, who had left the year of the Titanic. And uh, presumably, when you watch some of those documentaries about the year of the Titanic, it was hotting up in Ulster for people who were Roman Catholics in those days, and I imagine that they probably thought it was better to have a life somewhere else, and he went to the States. And I eventually, after a long period of searching in universities and libraries in Chicago, I eventually discovered this name, Danny McGinley, and the day he died. And I went with the information to the city hall in Chicago, and I said to the girl behind the desk, could I possibly have this man's death certificate? And she said, well, she says, It'll take two weeks, and it'll cost you $7. And I said, but I've come all the way from Ireland to trace my grandfather. And she said, I'll have it for you in half an hour. (laughs) And in half an hour, I was reading what I had concluded in my mind, but didn't really know to be true, killed by engine number 93 of the Chicago and Eastern Illinois Railway. Accidental death. He was working on the railways, and he'd been hit by an engine. But it told me where he was buried. And after 89 years, I found the man's grave that nobody had ever been to this traumatic experience had meant that my mum and the family were brought up in Sandy Row in absolute penury and made good Protestants, of course, in the process. But I was able, by the grace of God, to put a little stone with my one other cousin uh, on the grave in the Mount Hope Cemetery in Chicago, and to somehow or other honor this man who is part of my story, a man I never met, but a man who was trying to do his best for his family. But what kind of culture is it? We have to say it. I hope you feel the same. What kind of culture is it? where your mother has to whisper into your ear, only when you're of age, your grandfather was a Roman Catholic. There's something in me cracked at that moment, I have to tell you. And I thought, I do not want to collude with this kind of culture. And I hope that you don't want to collude with that kind of culture either. So I want to talk to you tonight about what it is to actually engage with the Samaritans. There are all sorts of issues, all sorts of groups of people with whom we need to engage in Northern Ireland. I'll just tell you of one other and then I'll get back to the subject. I don't know whether if I were to ask you, as I asked at the Bangor uh, Worldwide Missionary Conference last year. Where do you think the places are in Northern Ireland, which which of the highest number of people, sorry, in the whole of Ireland rather, which of the highest number of people of no religion in the census in 2011? Where would you say the places are that of the highest number of people of no religion? Well, there was an article in the Irish Times a couple of years back And it discovered that the places with the highest number of no religion are top of the league, Bangor, 21 percent, second, Carrickfergus, third, Newtonards in the whole of Ireland, all of which are highly Protestant kinds of places. And I always say when I say it, I'm bishop of the area in which two of them are, and I was curate in the other, but I'm not to blame. (laughs) There are all sorts of issues that we have to face, but the issue that we have to face to be able to face the other issues that we have to face is the elephant in the room. It's how Protestants and Roman Catholics relate together. Or in biblical terms, and I imagine that Roman Catholics might see it the same way of us, how Jews and Samaritans are going to actually relate together. Now, the Samaritans are a group which began to exist around the time of Elijah the prophet. They began to exist in the time of Omri, who was king before Ahab. And it tells us in 1 Kings 16:25, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And Omri bought the hill of Samaria and fortified the the hill, built the city, and was buried there. And that's the beginning of the Samaritans. And it worsened under Ahab because as In was telling us, those kings were a pretty ropey lot. If you've ever read 1066 and all that... The kings of Judah and Israel were generally bad king after bad king after bad king, and at this particular point, it's becoming worse king after worse king after worse king. And so, the Samaritans come in at the point where the kings were particularly bad, and the Samaritans come in as a group who are not quite the true, real thing. They're not quite the real McCoy. Why? Because they only believed in one part of the Old Testament or the Scriptures, the Pentateuch. They had at times embraced syncretism, they didn't keep the law in quite the same way as the Jews kept the law. Sometimes, in fact, they kept bits more strictly, sometimes bits less strictly. And they were attached to the wrong center of worship. They looked to Mount Gerizim rather than Jerusalem, and that probably is why the Samaritan village didn't like Jesus setting His face towards Jerusalem. So, in reality, The two groups lived in the same geographical area but they lived in parallel worlds. They generally avoided each other and they generally looked down on each other. And I don't think that's terribly different to the world we have inhabited and in a sense continue to inhabit here in Northern Ireland. I want to give you five little things. Well, before I do it, I'm going to use a word that we don't like, sectarian. It's not a nice word. There's nobody here who would in any sense say they're sectarian, I would imagine. If anybody said, are you a sectarian person, you would say no. It's almost like when you go to a funeral, And uh, when you hear somebody giving a eulogy about the person, and in the eulogy they say, oh, he was an absolutely wonderful person, especially wives. He was wonderful. He never had a bad word to say about anybody, and he never did anybody any harm in the whole of his life, and I'm wanting to puke. I was at one of those funerals recently, and it reminded me of a man, uh, the story of a man who decided that he would not allow anybody else to give a eulogy or a sermon at his funeral. And so it came to the time when the sermon would be preached, and nobody got up into the pulpit, and everybody sat down. And the speaker system came on, and what did they hear? They heard the voice of your man who was dead. He said, ha-ha, you thought I was dead. He said, I am more alive than ever. There are times when we kind of, we don't want to admit the truth, or we want to pretend that we're something other than what we are. Well, I want to give you five little points by which we can know a sectarian spirit. And I really want us to examine our hearts to say, Lord, if any of this is true of me, please, please bring this to my attention because I want to get this resolved and I want to get it sorted sorted, and I want to walk away from it. A sectarian spirit keeps ourselves in separate worlds, in separate school worlds, in separate social worlds, in separate territorial worlds, in separate sports worlds, and in separate church worlds. I often wonder if we really achieved the goal of a shared future in Northern Ireland what would it look like for the churches? Because the churches, whether they're Catholic churches or Protestant churches, benefit a great deal from being in communities that are predominantly Catholic or predominantly Protestant. A sectarian spirit keeps us in our own worlds. And you know as well as I do, that with all the progress that we have made, and thank God we have made it towards peace in Northern Ireland, we are more in separate worlds than we have ever been, especially geographically and territorially. And as Christians, I think it's time for us to begin to challenge that. And begin to say, I am not going to just inhabit a a kind of one monocultural world. Secondly, a sectarian spirit describes ourselves in a kindly way and the other negatively. I don't know about you. But certainly at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland, when the news came on, I knew the baddies and the goodies before they opened their mouths. I knew the people for whom you shout hurrah and the people whom you boo. One of the saddest but most enlightening experiences of my ministry over the last years has been to become a little bit of an expert at the flag protests. I spent, I think, six nights down at the flag protests. It was a, a really sad experience. And one of the saddest things of all was to hear the words that were coming out of the lips of kids who were firing petrol bombs over houses, not knowing where they were going, to hear the things that those kids were saying, which they hadn't made up for themselves, but they had been told. I've told the story before of how on one evening of the flag protests, I was standing outside St. Patrick's Church in Balaamacarrat, and the police had got all the protesters down Templemore Avenue, and I rang the rector of the parish, and uh, he had done a very interesting thing. Instead of closing the doors of the church, turning off the lights, locking the gates. He had opened the gates, opened the doors, turned on the lights, and his wife had come down and put the kettle on and made tea. And the protest was right outside. And at one particular moment, this young chap stood into the middle of the protest, pulled his balaclava down over his face, And said, I will just say the blankety-blanks are moving. And everybody went, whoa. And this wee kid of 13 came over to the bus shelter where I was standing. And there were a couple of journalists at the time from Le Monde and the Financial Times, I think it was. And he had a shovel in his hand. And he bashed and he bashed and he bashed the bus shelter. And it was plastic, and half of it fell into the street, and half of it fell inside the railings of the church. And the rector of the parish had been a prison warden and knew how to deal with them. and he said, hey there, congratulations, you're the first person ever to break that bus shelter, but I don't want that inside my church grounds. You come and pick it up, and he did. And then he said to the journalists, it's getting a bit hot and heavy out here. Do you want a cup of tea? And they said, yeah, good idea. And before we knew it, he'd asked the kids, do they want a cup of tea? And before we knew it, there were 50 or 60 flag protesters sitting in this lounge area in the church, right? Drinking tea, playing table tennis, wanting to go to the loo, all sort and the riot was going on in the street outside. It was crazy. Absolutely crazy. But a lady came into the church with her daughter. This is the point I want to make. And this woman had come from the Donegal Road with her daughter to see the flag brats. And they came inside the church. And the mother said to the rector's wife, what kind of church is this? And she says, it's Church of Ireland. And the mother said, I'm Church of Ireland. And the daughter says, Mommy, what am I? And she says, well, I'm Church of Ireland, and your father's Presbyterian, so we decided you can be whatever you want. And you know what the wee girl said, and there's no great, wonderful testimony in this at the end, but you know what the wee girl said at that moment? She said, I would love to be baptized I have never been baptized. I thought, what kind of crazy world is it where a mother brings a daughter down to see the flag protests? What kind of crazy world is it where we describe ourselves in such generous and kind terms. Our motives are always good, and the opposition's motives are always bad. Did you ever read the wee book, Mr. God, This Is Anna? Years ago, the wee yellow book by Finn. Anna's a little girl, and she's a bit of a philosopher, and she talks to this old tramp, and she's chatting away to the tramp on this particular day. And uh, she says to him, do you know what the difference is between darkness and light? He says, no. And Anna says, when you're in the darkness, you describe yourself. When you're in the light, other people describe you. Thirdly, a sectarian spirit sees the other person as a threat rather than a potential blessing. I had the privilege of being at the award that was given to Linda Irvine by the Community Relations Council for Outstanding Civic Leadership, and I was asked to speak at it alongside Martino Muller. And it was a very, very interesting experience because uh, she has decided to see the Irish language in her case, in the Skainos Centre, as not a threat but a blessing. I think sometimes we are almost afraid on both sides of our culture in Northern Ireland to actually say that there may be things that the other side has which will become a blessing to us. I imagine some of you have been at Brennan. Liz has been at Faldebrennan and read The Grace Outpouring. Uh, I started it and then I asked her to read it for me. And I gather the basic idea is that we learn to bless each other and to bless the other person, to speak words of blessing into situations where people are different to us or maybe seen to be threatening to us. And I remember standing on the Newtonards Road in a large prayer meeting after those flag riots, and we were blessing. Do you know where we were blessing? Short Strand. And do you know what happened? Somebody tweeted that we were praying prayers of blessing over Short Strand. And Niall O'Donnelly, the Sinn Féin counselor in Short Strand, tweeted back to say how much he appreciated the fact that we were praying prayers of blessing over his community. Sectarianism. Sees the other as a threat rather than a potential blessing. Sectarianism, fourthly, focuses on difference rather than agreement. The first thing that comes with the sectarian spirit is how we differ. And it doesn't happen just north of the border. It can happen in nicer ways south of the border. We lived in Cork for eight years. And I remember our daughter coming in and she said, Dad, Katrina says we don't believe in Our Lady, do we? I said, well, we do in a sense. We believe in Mary, believe in the Virgin Mary. We believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And then on the other way around, we say you worship Mary. We exaggerate difference rather than rejoice in the things in which we agree when we have a sectarian spirit. And we can see not just with Christians but also with Muslims what happens when Shia and Sunni Muslims disagree. The closer we are, uh, the more focused the differences become and the more difficult and intractable and sometimes vitriolic. The situation becomes. And we have to admit, those of us who are Protestants, I imagine that's most people here, that we were taught things about the Catholic Church that were to do with difference. But we weren't very often told about the things we had in common. With the Samaritans and the Jews, they both believed in Yahweh. They both had believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They both had a commitment to keeping the law. They both believed in the importance of worshiping Yahweh. And they both looked for the coming Messiah. And Protestants and Catholics and especially Catholics and Evangelicals have a massive amount in common. We agree on many ethical issues of the day. We have a commitment to a revealed faith. We utterly have a central, the doctrine of the Trinity and the creeds, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, His atoning death, His resurrection, His ascension, the entire creeds and the entire scriptures, but we always want to say that they have the Apocrypha. It's true. Fifthly, at its worst, sectarianism dehumanizes and objectifies. The prime minister was taken to task recently for speaking about migrants as a swarm, because that kind of language can be dangerous, because what swarms wasps and flies. If you've ever seen the film Hotel Rwanda, one group begins to speak of the other as snakes or cockroaches. And Miroslav Volf points out in Exclusion and Embrace that there can be a dangerous trajectory of distancing, of negative language, of dehumanizing, of objectifying, and then of wanting to remove. But the Spirit of Jesus takes us on the opposite trajectory. Jesus refuses to keep himself in a separate world. That's the essence of the incarnation, isn't it? Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, was born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. In John 4, the woman of Samaria, that story begins with a very interesting little sentence. It says he had to pass through Samaria, but he didn't. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. He could have crossed the river further down and gone up the other side and then across and missed out Samaria. But he did have to pass through Samaria in the sense it was the will of the Father for him to pass through Samaria. When I was a chaplain in Queen's University, we had one particular chap and he was very humdinging in his Protestant faith. And he lived near Newry. And he told me with great pride that he had never se- stepped one foot across the border. And I came back from summer holidays one year, and I'll call him Fred. He wasn't called Fred at all. And I met him in the street and I said, "Hello, Fred." And he said, "Hello, Mr. Miller." his only student called me Mr. Miller. "Hello, Mr. Miller," he said. "You'll be very pleased with me," he said. I went to Dublin. During the holidays. And then he said. But I brought my own sandwiches. I wouldn't give them a penny. (laughs) Jesus not only goes into Samaria. He buys the sandwiches in Samaria. He sends the disciples out. To buy the sandwiches in Samaria. He's prepared to trade in their shops. Jesus actually refuses to keep Himself in a separate world. And I would love a spirit in this new horizon tonight and a commitment in our hearts to say, we are not going to keep ourselves in a separate world because God possesses the whole world. We have no right just to preach the gospel to our own kind. We have so many churches where we just preach the gospel to our own kind, and we look for more people like ourselves to inhabit those places. Even at the height of the troubles, I suppose I was always difficult, I would say they will not stop me going anywhere. And I would love that spirit to be in you tonight that we will not only witness in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the world, we will actually live out our lives in every single part of this place, this land, in the name of Jesus because He did it. And then secondly, Jesus enters into human relationship with the woman. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus enters into a human relationship. He makes himself even dependent on the woman. That's not a good thing to do, to let the other side score a point Jesus makes himself dependent on her. Jesus initiates the conversation, the relationship with her. And I suppose in truth, even with the Son of God, what we are talking about is shared humanity. We enter into a relationship, a human relationship at least at the starting point, because we share the fact that we are human. And I have to say that sometimes our friends on the other side of the fence are better at this than we are. I have noticed, have you? I have noticed that we Protestants talking about me like to really size everybody up first, and then we'll decide whether we're really going to talk to them or not. I think what God is asking us to be and to do is absolutely to be open in our human relationships, in our warmth towards other people, in our engagement with other people, and not to allow the fact that that person may be in some way different, whatever way that may be, to hold us back in initiating a human relationship, a warm relationship, and a a starting point for what may come out of that. Thirdly, Jesus risks contamination. Contamination its quite an important theme, isn't it, for some of us? After all, what happens here is giving every opportunity for people to say, Jesus, what do you think you're doing? The woman appears at noon. Who would be coming at noon to draw water when the sun is so hot? Only someone who didn't want to be seen by somebody else. It was not appropriate for Jesus to approach a woman. And it was doubly not appropriate for him to approach a Samaritan woman. And it was particularly inappropriate for him to approach a Samaritan woman who may have been and proved to be had a very difficult and confusing kind of life. He could easily have been contaminated, could have been the wrong time of the month and all sorts of things, and could easily have been misunderstood. And I do not think that the gospel ever really goes forward in a powerful way without us risking misunderstanding. People say, why are you going there? What do you want to be doing that for? You shouldn't be seen with that person, or you shouldn't be in that particular kind of place, or whatever it may be. And some of us need to say, Lord, I am holy in you, and I am not going to be contaminated by the fact that somebody's the wrong kind of person. If that was going to happen, well, you know, Jesus gives us the way, doesn't he, in that? Jesus shows the way. Fourthly, we're nearly at the end. Jesus allows the people of threat to become the people of blessing. Why does he tell the parable of the good Samaritan? Because somebody has asked the question, Who is my neighbor? Why would he choose the Samaritan to be the person of blessing? I mean, it really should have been the priest or the Levite, shouldn't it? I don't know whether you've ever had that experience in your life that the person of blessing proves to be the least likely of people. The person who cares at the time when you've some need in your life, or the person who's there when nobody else is there, is sometimes the wrong kind of person. And what Jesus is saying is that the person whom you think is the wrong kind of person, I am making them the absolute model, the absolute example of what it is to be a neighbor. And in case you didn't get it that time, read the story of the lepers, the ten lepers. Then one of them in Luke 17, 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, it says, he was a Samaritan. We have so much to learn. And we have so much to be blessed by in the example of those who are different to us, who in some cases we airbrush out of our lives and see as threats, where they really can be a blessing to us and we to them. I want to tell you this particular story, and I'm sorry I'm going on just a few minutes longer than the time but it's a very pivotal story in my life. I was, as I say, a rector in Cork, and we had a mission taking place in our parish, and it was being led by Bishop Ken Goody. who was the rector of Shankill Parish in Lurgan at the time, and he brought a group from Shankill Parish, Lurgan. And as you know, Lurgan can be quite a divided place. It's probably the most divided town in the whole of Northern Ireland geographically. And Ken brought his group of maybe 10 people, whatever it was, and it was Holy Week. And on the Tuesday of Holy Week, I said, Ken, on the Thursday of Holy Week, we usually wash some feet. Ian was talking about the big story. Get ourselves into the big story. We usually wash some feet. How would it be, I said to Ken, how would it be if we had six northern Protestants washing the feet of six southern Catholics and vice versa? And he said, I don't know how they would cope with that. I said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll not even ask them to decide. I'll decide. We'll do it. And the night came and the church was packed. And the six southern Catholics were sat up at the front. The basin of water was brought around, and the Protestants from Lurgan washed their feet. It was a very powerful moment. And then the six northern Protestants sat down, and the local hairdresser, a lady called Mary McLean, who was leading the Catholic group, said, Harold, can I say something? I said, of course you can, Mary. Now, I had been told before this event that one of those six was really quite tough. Didn't like it very much. Her name was Florence, and she knows I tell her story. She's given me permission. So Florence was sat there. And Mary said, can I say something? I said, yeah. She eyeballed the six northern Protestants. And she said to them, we have been praying before this service tonight, and there's something we want to say to you. We want to ask your forgiveness for everything that has been done against you in the name of our community. was electric. When she got to Florence, Florence grabbed her and she bawled and she bawled and she bawled. And I thought, how am I going to get this service back on track? And then I thought, why do I need to get this service back on track? This is a God moment. She bawled and she bawled and she bawled. They've been close friends ever since. Amen. She saw in a moment the blessing, the excessive blessing that can come from the person whom you thought was your greatest threat. The last point I want to make is this. Jesus declares a future in Christ that is greater than their differences you see what happens in the story? The Samaritan woman wants to get into the usual kind of discussion that always happened between the Jews and the Samaritans. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Ding dong, ding dong. Here's the usual argument we have. Good chance to focus on difference. But Jesus elevates the conversation to a different level. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain or on Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is Spirit, and those who worship will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Then she says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. I have to tell you, that in my experience, the very people whom we don't meet with as Protestants in Northern Ireland are more open to the love and the good news of Jesus Christ than many people in our own community. And God help us, literally God help us, If we decide so to put boundaries on the gospel, that people who can be blessed by the gospel and bless us with their response to the gospel and do as that woman did and go back and testify that she has found the Messiah, God help us if we limit ourselves. And God will bless us so abundantly if we're prepared to fill in that missing square in the jigsaw, Jerusalem, Judea, the whole of the world. But what about Samaria at home? I've asked for a cross to be here tonight. And you'll find on your seat a little yellow sticky. Would you like to get the yellow sticky? And if you have a pen, maybe you'd like to get a pen as well. And then I want you to be really quiet. There's a cross up here and there are two black bins. And I'm going to ask you just to do a little bit of focusing down. Say, Lord, has there been or is there any spirit of sectarianism in me that I want to ask for forgiveness for, that I want to bring to the foot of this cross Is there any person that I consider the enemy that I want to put the name of onto this cross and pray a prayer of blessing over them? Is there any part of this province that you might be calling me to that I have simply blotted out or presumed was just not for us. It wasn't even there. I'm going to ask you just to write down what you want to say to the Lord about what has been preached tonight and then when we begin the music and ask the musicians to come up, I'm going to invite you to come and either to stick it on the cross or to put it in the bin because this is really, really important tonight. Actually, our response to this one really could transform this province let's bow our heads in prayer just quietly ask for the spirit of God to reveal to you what you need to hear what you need to do. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, but Lord, you have called us to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Lord, we dare to ask that you would impassion us with this tonight. Not just that we'd hear it, that you would impassion us with such a love for our neighbor right beside us, that we may be transformational in this place.